this morning we're going to do, as Jairus just said, a deep dive into the Gospel of John. We're going to break this series up over, over time, but it's going to take us about two years to get through this Gospel. And I hope in, in saying that you don't go, oh my goodness, boredom, here we come. The Word of God, preaching, should be endlessly interesting because the Word of God, no matter where we turn, is endlessly interesting because God is endlessly interesting. You'll never get to the end of God. You'll never get to the end and say, well, I knew it all. Some of us think we do, but you haven't scratched the surface. God, if he appeared in all of his glory one, it would, it would kill us. But there's so much of him to enjoy. The scriptures say the earth is full of his glory. So we're going to dive into this gospel, the gospel of John. I ask you to open it up with me if you have it on your, any, any way you can get it. You can even download an app while we're sitting here and get the Bible in just a few minutes. I'm glad for preaching through a gospel because gospels do something that, that, that sometimes other books of the Bible make it harder. Sometimes other books of the Bible, it's harder to see Jesus. It's like you read some of these Old Testament passages and you're like, where is Jesus? But the gospels, when you read the gospels, you can't help but run into Jesus in almost every aisle. You, you constantly keep running into him. And that's why I love preaching through a gospel. But John's gospel is different than the other gospels. The other gospels are considered the synoptics. They give us a synopsis of the life of Jesus. But John takes a very different approach. Of the four gospels, John is the most theological. He spends two-thirds of the entire book, if you just flip to the end of the book if you're in the beginning you flip to the end you'll see it's about it's not about it's 21 chapters so those 21 chapters that's about how much it takes up in my bible take you about an hour and a half to read it so you should do that you should go home and read the entire book of john take you an hour and a half you got that somewhere in your schedule you read that and take it in, and what you'll find is two-thirds of the entire book is all about the last week of Jesus' life. So John is emphasizing something there, right? And spending two-thirds of his entire gospel about the end of Jesus' life, which includes his death on the cross, which is the what John is highlighting is what's most meaningful to us, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, that he came to die for sins he didn't deserve, that he might rescue a people and make them his own. Amen. So this is going to be a great study. My hope and prayer is that we would not just grow in our knowledge of facts about Jesus, but that we would grow in our knowledge of the Son of God and in our knowledge of Him that we would grow in our love for Him, that He would become our supreme treasure, the one that John introduces as, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? 
That's my prayer. Hey, there's kids here in the service. I love, uh, Josh Hurst was here recently, and he, he, he addressed the, the kids that are in the service. A couple things. One is, to parents, there's some resources available to you. Just go on the website. You can click right on the, the, the opening part of our website that has information about Bible study for kids to actually work through the Gospel of John while we're going through the Gospel of John. If your kids are old enough, and, and kids, if you're listening to me, um, get a sheet of paper or write, draw a picture. I'm going to be talking about Jesus. Draw a picture of who you think Jesus is based on my and John's descriptions. Write down something that you learn about Jesus and then talk about it later with your family. Good? You ready to get in? All right, let's go. Sometimes I wish that I had Bruce Buffer's job. A couple laughs. Bruce Buffer, most of you don't know, but some of you do know. I wish that I had his job. He is an announcer for the UFC, which is the ultimate fighting championship. A lot of you have never watched this or engaged in this, but some of us, I'm looking at you, have. And Bruce Buffer has this incredible job because all he does is he's the announcer. And he gets paid. I looked this up. I just wanted to find out how much does he get paid to announce the fighters? How much does he get paid to do this? He gets paid minimally $50,000 for every event that he does. And if it's a big event, he gets $100,000. He has made $10 million in the last 10, 15 years simply being the veteran voice of the octagon. He's an announcer. He does introductions. And to me, it sounds like a really good gig. Like, how do you get that gig? I like public speaking. Maybe I'd be good at this. Maybe I could do this. I'd like to, I'd like to try it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event of the evening. The moment you've been waiting for. Our referee in charge of the octagon this evening is Herb Dean. Ladies and gentlemen in attendance this evening and UFC fans all over the world, this is the moment you've been waiting for. Now, if you know Bruce Buffer, you know this is coming. It's time! Now, he does a little jump. He used to. He blew out his knee jumping. So this, this job is actually demanding. You can blow your knee out doing this job. Five rounds in the UFC, in the heavyweight division, and he holds his card. He's got to remember a lot of information. And then he always says, introducing first. Introducing first. He gets paid to do introductions. He introduces fighters, and he gives you your basic bio. Height, weight, reach, win-loss record, and where they're from. I want you to imagine for me the task that is before John when he sat down with pen in hand to introduce his gospel and to introduce us to Jesus. Here's your task. We want you just to introduce Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. What would you choose to say if you had to introduce Jesus? And what would you inevitably choose not to say 
if you were to introduce Jesus? What words would you use? Flip to the end of the, of the gospel. If you flip all the way to the end of it, and the last verse, I love this verse, John says this, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. You see this? Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. Your task is to introduce someone that if you wrote down everything that they did, the world couldn't hold the books. What do you say? John introduces this account of Jesus with this 18-verse introduction. This is what he has, anointed by the Spirit of God, decided to, to say in his introduction about Jesus. This is often known as the prologue. John's gospel begins with a prologue, that's the beginning, and it ends with an epilogue, and that's the, be, that's the end. And then he gives us a, an account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He wrote this introduction about Jesus, and my guess is he didn't get paid for it. So let's dig in. John's gospel begins, as I said, with a prologue. Each of the gospels present us with a different angle of Jesus. Matthew has a different emphasis than John and Luke and Mark. Matthew emphasizes Jesus' kingship. Mark emphasizes Jesus' servanthood. So Jesus came as a servant. Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity. So he emphasizes his manhood. John's emphasis is different than theirs. John emphasizes Jesus' godhood, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. You could write that in the top of your Bible. That's what John's going to emphasize. Jesus, the Son of God. And that's important for us because we don't have any salvation if he's not the Son of God. So Jesus is the Son of God. These first 18 verses are deeply theological. You were paying attention to Andrea, and rightfully so, as she recited, and probably wondering if she was nervous and wondering things, and maybe you didn't catch what she was saying when she recited it. I want you to read, be reading these passages of Scripture while we read them together. You can read them before the service and, and begin to try to understand this gospel. I have avoided the gospel of John. I've been preaching almost every Sunday for 10 years, and I have intentionally avoided this one because this gospel is hard to understand. Sometimes people say, hey, I got a new believing friend, someone who's just started to follow Christ, and I told him to read the book of John. And I go, John. Now, it's the scripture, so it's always good, right, that they be reading it. But John, man, whoo! John is like, at one level, in, in, seriously simplistic and then at another level if you had to like re reiterate what he just said you have no idea his vocabulary is very simplistic but his ideas are deep 
So we got these 18 verses and they are slightly confusing and I'm going to try to do my best to make some sense out of them for us. It's been said that no section of scripture captured the imagination of the early Christian church for the first three centuries more than these 18 verses. They were just minds blown about who Jesus is. We basically can form a doctrine of the Trinity. If you're looking for proof that the that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. John 1, 1 through 18 is where you can get it. This is deep. So the question we should ask is, why does John begin this way? Why does John begin with a prologue? Why doesn't John begin? I like the way Matthew and, and Luke begin. They begin with uh, a story of a peasant girl and and the first Christmas and how Jesus came into being and this immaculate, uh, miraculous conception of a virgin and we got the Christmas story. Why don't he begin there? He doesn't begin there, actually. You're going to see at the end of the prologue, he begins in Jesus' adult life. So his introduction tells us nothing about the first 30 years of his life. Zip. Doesn't include any of it. Why? Why does he choose to start this way? Why, doesn't, why does he take this different approach? He just jumps in, skipping over the first 30 years of his life. We should be asking why. And I'm going to answer the why for you. The reason why John is doing this is in keeping with a theme that he, he maintains throughout the entire book. His overriding goal of the entire gospel is to give you, to present to you, to make a case to you for the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That's what he's doing over and over and over and over again. He's persuading, he's trying to persuade you that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus is the Son of God. So we will be helped in understanding this gospel if we keep John's primary purpose in view. You should do this with all the books you read. You should try to understand what the author's primary purpose is, and then all the other chapters make sense. And I want you to circle something, highlight it in your Bibles. Go to John chapter 20. We don't have to wonder what John's purpose is. We don't, he, he tells us. Not all writers of the Bible do this. I actually appreciate this. I appreciate when an author just tells me, this is my purpose. This is my thesis. This is why I wrote this book. I like that. It helps me. Then I can decide whether I want to read it or not. John tells you why he wrote this book. You should circle this. You should know this verse. Know John 20, verse 31. Because every time we look at a passage from John, you should go back and ask yourself, what is this? how does this connect to his purpose? Look at his purpose. John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written, these things that I wrote, are written so that you may, what, church, is anybody reading along? Believe. What's John want you to do? Believe. Maybe you should write that at the beginning of the, the book. John's got one, one thought in mind. He wants you to believe in something. He wants you to believe in Jesus. But he doesn't just leave you there. 
But these are written so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, look at it, and that by believing, you're going to get something. He wrote this so that you would believe in Jesus and that by believing, you may have what, church? Life. In whose name? Jesus. Anybody want life in Jesus' name? Anybody have life in Jesus' name? If you have and life in Jesus' name, that means you have life right now and you have life forever and ever and ever and ever. You believe that? That means that God created a soul and your soul is never going to die. It's going to be with him forever and ever and ever. Hell and all the bad things of this world will ultimately have the final say with you because you're going to be with Jesus forever and ever. And all you need to do is what? Believe. I'm getting ahead of myself. I got to the end of my message before I got through like even the beginning of it. That's John's purpose. His entire effort is not just to write down facts about Jesus. His entire effort in writing is to persuade you. To persuade you to believe in Jesus and in believing that you would have everlasting life. That's what he wants. God's introducing us to Jesus. Now, what's going to happen in this book if you will let it? Do you want God to do what he wants to do? Or would you prefer to keep God away from you, just a little bit away from you? I'll believe, I'll have everlasting life, but don't come into the, all the closets of my heart. See, this is the problem. I've thought about you guys all this week. I've thought about myself. This is the problem. We don't 100% of the time carry in our minds a 100% accurate view of who Jesus is. Do you know what we carry in our minds? A view of what we want Jesus to be. So the Jesus that we're worshiping right now for all of us in some way is not the real Jesus. He's a Jesus of our own making. So what we want to do, what, what John wants to do is he's going to present to you the real Jesus. And the real Jesus is going to, you're going to learn things from him that warm your heart, that, that move you towards love in him towards believing in him that you would enjoy life in him if you'll see him for who he really is but he will change you he's changing us he's making us like himself and so that means there's more change coming He's changing us, and that's good, and that's beautiful. He's painting a beautiful picture with all of your lives because he's conforming you into the image of the real Jesus. Not what you want Jesus to be, not what other people want Jesus to be, not political Jesus, not Republican Jesus, not Democrat Jesus, not some weak mamby-pamby Jesus, not genie-in-a-bottle Jesus. 
Not good for only Sunday mornings, Jesus. Not just Hallmark, Jesus, who's good for glowing cradles at Christmas time for holiday cards. Not just Easter, Jesus, but the real Jesus. You want to know him? You've got to get into this book. We've got to get into this book to see who he is. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to unpack this introduction, and the introduction is going to include two parts. What I'm going to do is give an explanation. So an introduction always should explain. If I introduce you to someone, I'll explain briefly who you are to those people. That's what he's going to do. He's going to explain who Jesus is, but his introduction doesn't stop at just an explanation of Jesus. His introduction includes an appeal. So he makes his introduction, and then he says, and you need to respond. You, you, need to, you need to make a decision about who Jesus is to you. So the introduction, again, an explanation of who Jesus is, and an appeal to receive him, an appeal to believe in him, an appeal to respond favorably to him. So let's do an explanation, okay? If you look at verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son. I wrote down the one and only. So what John is going to do is introduce us to the one and only Jesus. There is no other Jesus. Introducing the one and only, and in introducing Him, John explains the greatness of Jesus Christ. And he starts with, in, be, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A very confusing sentence, if you will take a few minutes to understand it. John begins by declaring that the Word, which is another name for Jesus, already that's confusing, right? The Word, Jesus, was in the beginning with God, and that the word was God. Now, I want to ask a question. This phrase would have grabbed the original audience because he starts, in the beginning was the word. Now, if you were a reader of your Bible, that is going to... Ding, 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 ding. As soon as they read John's letter, they were, in the beginning, I know where that is. I've heard that before. Where have they heard that, church? Right to the beginning of your Bible. So you go right to the beginning of your Bible and look at where it starts. I love doing this. I love showing you guys these things. I love putting the Bible together. Don't you guys love that? It all fits. Look at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1. Same three words. In the beginning. John's linking his gospel to the opening introduction of God's Word, which is a description of the introduction of creation. John doesn't go back to, to Jesus when he was a boy. John doesn't go back just to Jesus when he's an adult. John goes all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way back to the beginning before there was creation. There was only God. That's where Jesus is. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternally pre-existent. That's your Jesus. That's the real Jesus. He never was created. He doesn't have a beginning. He was there with God and was God. 
There was never a time that Jesus did not exist because the Word was. The Word was means was continuing. Jesus always was. Or you might say it this way. Jesus always was, wasn't. He's all. He always was. He always will be. He's eternally pre-existent. Jesus is always continuing. The Alpha and the Omega, no beginning, no no end. And our minds are already not able to take this stuff in. You start to get a headache trying to understand this stuff. And what I'm telling you is within one sentence, so begin our thoughts on the greatness of Jesus Christ. Who's ready? Who's ready to go? Who's ready to go deeper? Jesus is eternally pre-existent. You guys are too quiet at home because I can't hear you. You're too quiet in here. Jesus, your Savior, if you've trusted Him, is eternally pre-existence. That's just one tiny aspect of who the real Jesus is. Is that exciting to anybody? What a Savior. Eternally pre-existent. You're not trusting in someone who just showed up within the last thousand years. You're trusting in someone who is eternally preexistent. He's eternally with God and he's eternally God. So if there's some new believers here that are wondering, what does that mean? It means that Jesus existed in perfect harmony with God the Father and God the Spirit. Perfect relationship, perfect intimacy, but that it wasn't just existing with, he actually existed as one person of the Godhead. God in three persons. You getting your mind around this? No, you're not. So he's eternally pre-existent. He's eternally with God. He's eternally was God. This is all part of John's explanation, and we're only one sentence in. Then it says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I saw one writer say it this way. This is like a, 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 a perfect translation of the Greek. All things through him became, and without him became not one thing which has become. I love that. It's like a riddle. Do you see this? He, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So a little quiz. How much was made through him? Everything. All things were made through him. And how much was made without him? Nothing. You see this? This is amazing. Everything that exists in creation was made by Jesus, and nothing was made apart from him. Everything in the world is made up of atoms been a long time since you studied atoms right you should study these things because they bring glory to god atoms are made up of three parts anybody know kids you know what the parts of an atom are somebody said neutrons that's one protons and electrons now i'll just tell you that protons have a positive charge neutrons have a neutral charge okay And they exist in the nucleus of each atom. 
electrons have a negative charge and they orbit the nucleus. And just to give you a, a, a spatial understanding of, of how distant the nucleus is from the electrons, if an atom was the size of Lincoln Financial Field, the nucleus would be a P. And go home and think about that. The force that holds all atoms together, the forces are nuclear and electrical forces. And those forces are 1,038 times more powerful than gravity. Invisible atoms being held together by forces that are more powerful than gravity. The average size of an atom is about one-tenth of a billionth of a yardstick. You, sitting right where you are, are made up of seven billion, billion, billion atoms. Well, isn't there a number for seven billion, billion, billion? Yeah, it is. I don't know what it is. There is a number for it. It's a lot of zeros. You are made up of seven billion, billion, billion atoms. Now, check this out. Remember, we're explaining Jesus, who's made you. Seven billion, billion, billion atoms, and, and you replace about 98% of those atoms every year. Seven billion, billion, billion replaced every year. The human body, did you guys notice, basically recreates itself every six months. Nearly every cell, cells are made up of atoms, of your hair and your skin and your tissue and your bone dies and another is directed into its place. You are not who you were six months ago. You're not who you were when COVID began. You're a totally new you. Seven billion, billion atoms. John tells us that all things were made through him. He was before all things and all things hold together. Jesus, the word tells us, is sustaining all things by the word of his power. You are not disintegrating right now. You're not falling apart because the forces that hold you together are being commanded right now by Jesus who made you and created you. Church, what is an application here? The God who made you and is holding you together can be trusted with everything. You can trust Him with all things. He knows. He's the eternal Creator. He knows just what His creation needs at every moment in time. He knows what creation needs. He's giving us what, is, what he, we need. Charles Steinmetz was a mechanical genius. He was actually a friend of Henry Ford's. And Henry Ford, you know, for, for creating the Ford Motor Company, making the first cars, and creating the assembly line on which they produce cars. It was said of Charles Steinmetz that he could build an engine in his mind, take it apart in his mind, envision how it ran, and then build it. And basically it ran 
almost perfectly all the time because he could brilliantly see it in his mind. So one day, the assembly line at the Ford plant broke down. And they couldn't get the assembly line working again. They were trying to get it working. They couldn't get it working. So Henry Ford called his friend Charles Steinmetz. Charles came in. He tinkered around for a few minutes, threw a switch, and everything started working again. And so a few days later, Henry Ford got a bill from Charles Steinmetz for $10,000. And Henry Ford wrote back, Charles, I mean, come on. Isn't $10,000 a little much for a little tinkering? Charles Steinmetz revised the bill. Tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Jesus knows where to tinker in our lives. He's tinkering in your life right now. He's tinkering in the United States right now. He's turning dials. He's flipping switches. He is not out of control, though. He knows exactly what he's doing in all things. And he's calling on his people to see this great, incredible view of who he is. And then he's saying, will you trust me. Friends, where are you having trouble trusting Jesus? What are the things that make you angry? There's an indicator of, of something that's out of your control and you're having a hard time trusting God with things that are out of your control. Some of us can't imagine a four years where President Trump is reelected. Some of us can't imagine four years with Joe Biden elected President of the United States. Can we trust God with that? Only if you believe that he is who he says he is. Where do you where are you experiencing experiencing emotions out of control? Is there something going on in your health right now? Is there a, a depression that's gripping you or a loved one? Where is it difficult for you to trust God? What, what John is doing here is presenting us Jesus and, and, and it gets very practical because then he calls on us to trust him. That he is, yes, he's doing some tinkering and you don't understand all that he's doing. You don't understand why are you flipping that switch, Jesus? Why are you turning that dial, Jesus? Why are you doing this, Jesus? Jesus, if I were you, I wouldn't do it that way. I don't like the way you're doing things. And Jesus says, son, daughter, I created you. I know what I'm doing. Will you trust me? church, will we trust Jesus with the circumstances of our lives? Are you resting? That's what it means to trust. Are you resting in Jesus? If you're trusting in Him, you're resting. You're not going crazy. Are you going into, are you ranting a lot right now? 
Do you go on to social media maybe or just when you gather your friends together or just your family and you start ranting about things, the state of the world, things that are going on, things in your life and you're ranting a lot? Can I ask you a question? What does trust and rest in Jesus look like? Is it your ranting? Is that what is that demonstrating trust in God? Is it emboldening trust in God for others? Is it helping other people to trust Jesus? Friends, we should be asking ourselves these questions. We're going to go a little bit longer this morning. John goes on in his, in his introduction. He leaves the, this, these ideas and then he starts to introduce Jesus as the life and the light. The light and the life. These are universally recognizable symbols. You see, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light. He's using this language over and over again. Light and life, universally recognizable religious symbols, but they're not just sentimental props. John's just not saying, Jesus is the light and the life, and we all go, oh, the light and the life. I like that. Makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. No, he's not telling you these things. He's telling you that Jesus is the light and the life, which is the opposite of the darkness and death, which is where we exist apart from Christ. So uh, we in our brokenness and our rebellion exist in darkness. Spiritually, we are dead and we are in darkness. And Jesus breaks into the world bringing his light and his life. And, that's that, and it's that what saves us. We were groping around in the darkness like Gollum in the mines of Moria. We were trying to find rest and happiness in all these things and everything but Jesus. And it left us lost and it left us depressed and it left us searching. And Jesus turns the light on in the darkness of our lives and he regenerates us by giving us life in his name. So all those things are another way of describing grace. The light of grace is revelation. The life of grace is regeneration. And that's what Jesus brings. It reminds us, if we're Christians, that we are Christians because of the grace of God. Did you remember that this morning when you got up? That you are saved by grace because you were once in darkness and Jesus flipped on the lights because you were once groping around, lost and not knowing what the future holds, existing without a future, without knowledge of God. And He put His life into you through the work of Jesus Christ who came bringing light and life to man. Praise Him. Outside of Jesus, there may be biological life, but there is no spiritual life. There is only darkness. If you want spiritual life, which I know you want, you're here this morning because you want that. It's found in Jesus. He brings light and life to us. Now, I told you that the introduction includes an explanation. And that's why I spent a majority of my time explaining. But there's also an appeal. 
John doesn't just introduce you to Jesus. He makes an appeal. John wants to show us Jesus and he appeals for a response and he says it this way. You may have remembered when Andrea was reciting. He was in the world and the world was made through him. We already knew that. And the world, though, did not know him. This is perplexing. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The appeal is that he presents Jesus and then he says, you either got to receive him or you're going to reject him. There's only two options here. You're either going to receive this Jesus or you're going to reject this Jesus. And sadly, what this scripture tells us is that many reject Jesus. They get this description of Jesus and they choose to reject him. Why would people reject Jesus? Based on the explanation that we just heard and his greatness, why would humanity reject Jesus? Why do people not want to come into the light? Jesus tells us that he, he's, his life was one of, of rejection. He was rejected to the point of being nailed to a cross. He knew rejection. And he tells people later in the Gospel of John, this is the condemnation, he says, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light. So Jesus shows up and he's the light and they say, we don't like you. We prefer the darkness to light. Why would anybody say that? Because, and Gabe just said it, because 3 verse 19, their deeds were evil. I was listening to R.C. Sproul. He was talking about this. He's a great Bible teacher. He's since gone on to be with the Lord. But he was telling, he was on a radio program and he was teaching this verse. And he was being interviewed and, and teaching. And on the radio program, instead of saying that men chose darkness because their deeds were evil, he said men chose darkness because their deeds were devil. And he was so embarrassed. And the other guy who was interviewing him laughed at him. Eads were devil. What are you talking about? And he was so embarrassed that he never recovered. He just like he had to get out of the interview. He just he, he couldn't. And then for years he would read that verse. Did you ever do something really embarrassing and you'll like out loud? You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes when I'm by myself, I'll think of something that I did and I'll go ah. Don't you ever do that? It's like, ah, oh, how could I say that in front of her? Things that I did when I was dating my wife, like, wow, how could I do that? Ah, oh, I would let it out. R.C. Sproul said when he thinks about that verse and their eeds were devil, he would, oh, he would flinch every time he thought of it. He was never able to think about that moment without flinching. We ought to flinch when we read these words. Jesus came into the world. He came in as the light. And many and most would prefer darkness rather than coming into the light. Why? Because Jesus is going to expose me. Because, because Jesus knows. He's going to shine a light on this. And I don't want anyone to see it. 
not realizing that coming into the light where it is exposed, He shows you Himself as the one that dies on the cross in your place. See the Bible fitting together here? This is the reason why Jesus came. So that broken people like you and me who have all kinds of nasty junk that's exposed when His light shines but is forgiven and is cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Come into the light. Don't stay in the darkness. Don't, don't believe the lie that Jesus isn't going to help you. I got ahead of myself. I'm going to skip that illustration. You don't know what I'm skipping, but I'm skipping something. How incredible it is that we would reject Jesus. He was rejected by those who would have been incinerated if He'd have revealed His glory to Him. He was rejected by those that He spoke into existence. So the people that are rejecting Him are people that He created. Can you imagine your children rejecting you after all you've done for them? I don't even know you. I don't even want you. This is what we've done to Christ. And I think there's, a, there's an application here that I want us to consider. And the band can return. But the application is this. I, this is a call to not reject Christ, but to receive Him. And I, I just, if you're here and you've never accepted or received Jesus, or you're, you're, you're aware that coming into the, out of the darkness and into the light is to be exposed and you don't want that, I want to encourage you to respond to Christ. And we're going to see in a moment how loving He is. So, don't reject Jesus. Receive Him. But I, I, I want to say this too to everyone who would say, I'm in the category of those who have rejected Him. I want to return to something I said in the beginning. Because we do morph Jesus into our own, what we want Him to be. And so what I want to appeal to you is that in some way, you're not receiving Jesus 100%. We're always rejecting some aspect of Him. We like um, the Jesus salad bar. Do you know what the Jesus salad bar is? It's when you go up to the Jesus salad bar and you pick out the parts of Jesus that you like and then you say, no, hold that. I don't want that. You say, give me some grace. Give me some mercy. Give me forgiveness for my sins. Yeah, pile that on. I like that. But then we get to obedience. Nah, hold, hold that until next week. Maybe I'll take a dose of that. I don't like that on my salad. You see what I'm saying? There's parts of Jesus that we reject when we go into the Jesus salad bar. Where are you currently rejecting the real Jesus? Some of us like Sunday morning Jesus. He's such a good friend. We get up on Sunday mornings. We get dressed. We go to church outside. It's like 70 degrees out. We're under the tent. I see some people that I like and I love it. But then we don't think, but we reject everyday Jesus. Sunday morning Jesus, I like him. But everyday Jesus, that's a little too much. Every minute of everyday Jesus, don't want that. Some of us like touchdown Jesus. He, he's the Jesus that helps us to do good in athletic events. 
You know, he's the UFC fighter that tattoos Philippians 4.13 across his chest. And we're like, yeah. But then he goes and denies Jesus with the rest of his life. It's easy to get a tattoo. It's hard to follow Jesus. And we reject him. Some of us, like, prepare yourself for this. Some of us are pro-life Jesus. And we should be. But we're pro-life Jesus as it relates to life before birth. But are we as pro-life Jesus as it relates to life after birth? See, we, we take parts of Jesus that we like. Some of us are help me Jesus. We like, Je we like help me Jesus. We're always focused on ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with this. Self-improvement and growth is important in the Christian life. But we get so caught up in help me Jesus that we never consider love your neighbor like you love yourself. You never consider that there's millions and millions of people that are dying right now without access to the gospel. And we could make a difference through our prayers, through our giving, or even through our going. But we don't consider that because Jesus to us is just the help me Jesus. He's not the Jesus of the nations. Some of us, are no, we like knowledge Jesus. We're going to study this book of Bible and we're just going to build up all kinds of facts about Jesus. But we're never going to quite get around to doing them. We reject the Jesus that calls us to do. And we accept the Jesus that calls us to get to grow in our knowledge. What's amazing is that that passage doesn't stop with rejection. Verse 12. But. But's always a good word in the Bible. Typically a good word. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You don't have to reject Jesus. You can receive him. And when you do, you become a child of God. What's so amazing, what's most amazing is not how great Jesus is, but how incredible his love is. His love is this bottomless sea of love that overflows to us. Not everyone rejects Jesus. Some respond, and the result is astounding. It's incomprehensible, church, that God, the Creator of all things, the One who is upholding all things by the Word of His power, should enable me, one who has rejected Him, to become His child. You with me? we got to hold this truth close to our hearts. Coming into the light and life of Jesus is a matter of incredible simplicity. What do you have to do? What do you have to do to enjoy the light and life of Christ? Church, it's not a trick question. What do you have to do? You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to get a membership out. You don't have to uh, spend any money. You don't have to sign anything. All you have to do is believe. Now, believing includes some things. But it's really quite simple. Are you lonely? Are you insecure? Are you worried? Are you depressed? Receive Jesus. Receive the light and life. 
Jesus will have you. The question is, will you have him? Will you respond and will you believe? John has left us with an introduction to open this gospel. He's explained to us the greatness of Jesus and the greatness of his love. And then he appeals. Will you receive him or will you reject him? Let's stand and sing.